0: This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Have you ever had the urge to have a conversation with someone who's just right on the front lines of the defense of marriage and of the traditional family and of other important issues on the public square? at the very elite level of the conversation on one of America's Ivy League University campuses. That's what we're going to do today. And My conversation is going to be with Professor Robbie George, and it's going to be interesting. Robert P. George is McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence at Princeton University. He is also the director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. He's one of America's leading public intellectuals, a graduate, of Swarthmore College, Harvard Law School, Harvard Divinity School, and Oxford University. Robbie George, welcome to Thinking in Public.
1: Thanks very much, Al. It's a pleasure to be back on your show.
0: It's always good to have a conversation with you. And today, there's a particular topic that's very much on my mind. It has to do... Was something that I know is central to your thought and your work. But as we are here in the year 2011, it just seems to be one of the most pressing questions that I could uh, I could envision we might talk about, and that is the process of moral change in a society. And uh, you are uh, able to address this from philosophy and, uh, and of course, jurisprudence. But uh, we come to this with larger cultural and sociological concerns as well, and a deeply theological concern, how is it that we now face a reality in which what we are facing is is nothing less than a moral revolution? What, what was once considered wrong is now celebrated and normalized, and what was once normalized is now considered wrong. Just to give you the example, the judge in the case in the United Kingdom that found these Christians, this Christian couple that had a bed and breakfast guilty of violating human rights for insisting that only married couples have access to a married bed – The judge said with an acknowledgement that I thought was amazingly honest that what this couple held to in terms of moral principles was considered laudable and normal and right just a generation ago, but now the situation is totally reversed. Is there a precedent for this kind of speed in terms of a moral revolution and worldview?
1: Uh, Yes, I I think there are probably a number of precedents. Uh, Moral views can shift really quite dramatically. Now, here's the problem. Uh, they usually shift downwards quickly, but it takes a long time to rebuild a moral structure. It's like a house. It takes a long time to build a house. You can't do that overnight, but you can blow one up in a matter of a few minutes. Yeah. Uh, so the the edifice of our Western civilization built on the Judeo-Christian ethic, the biblical ethic, uh, the edifice took a long time to put into place, and, and we've never really had it securely uh, in place. We've always been been flawed, despite the greatness of our culture. Uh, we've always been at our best and truest to ourselves when we've been true to the principles of our civilization, to the principles of the Judeo-Christian uh, tradition. But, but of course, we've never been completely faithful to it. But we've built a, a cultural uh, edifice, uh, institutions that embody the great principles of the sanctity of human life, the dignity of marriage as the conjugal union of husband and wife, religious freedom and the rights of conscience, the other high ideals Of uh, of our civilization. We've we've built a great edifice over many, many decades and centuries, but it can come down very quickly. Now, that has happened in in history before. Uh, If you look at uh, the ancient world, uh, sometimes great civilizations have been built up over many, many generations and centuries, but then fallen very quickly uh, with, uh, with abrupt moral decline.
0: You know, I'm thinking of Will and Ariel Durant and their little summary book, The Lessons of History. And uh, they were lay historians, but they had a keen insight from time to time. And one of the things they said is that it takes a long time, just as you're arguing here, to enforce restraint and a very short amount of time to uh, remove those reinforcements.
1: Yes, that's, that's exactly the problem. That is exactly the problem. And of course, from a theological vantage point, uh, this reflects the fallenness of our nature, the weakness of our, our nature, the fact that we're damaged by sin. Uh, our natural tendency is to uh, act on our desires, uh, whether they're good or bad, uh, to, to yield uh, to temptation, uh, to go for what we want, when we want it, however we can uh, get it. Uh, to build restraints to that, to, to teach a child to restrain himself, to teach a child to exercise self-control takes time because the natural tendency of the child Is the opposite is is, is in the opposite direction, and the same is true with uh, with a culture. The same is true with a a civilization, Uh, which uh, means not that we should give up the effort, but that we should redouble our efforts to uh, to restore the principles that made our civilization great.
0: You know, as a as a reformed theologian, I would look at this and say. That uh, what we see is the need for restraining grace, common grace, and uh, you know I I know that you would counter with yes, and one illustration of that is the natural law, and uh, and, and what we see here though is uh, is a society that seems to be absolutely determined to ignore the obvious.
1: Well, it's not the whole of the society, and I think it's important for us to recognize that, um, Al, lest we um, lest we're too harsh on our fellow citizens. Uh, the the, the rot has gone pretty far, no question about that. You see it in the popular media and and so forth. But uh, where we we find ourselves in the greatest trouble is in the elite sector of the culture. It's really remarkable, given how far gone the elite sector of the culture is, uh, how far away from the Judeo-Christian ethic uh, that sector of the culture has gone. It's quite remarkable that, that that the principles of the culture remain in place, you know, broadly, we're still a very religious people, the people of the United States. Uh, we're, we're more religious by far than our European uh, neighbors or Canadians or uh, Australians or people in other uh, parts of the world. Uh, we still have not caved in as a culture to something like the redefinition of marriage. Uh, while Europe has basically gone completely over uh, to the abolition of the uh, conjugal conception of marriage as the union of husband and wife, Every time that issue has been put to the voters in the United States, that's 31 times so far put to a referendum in the United States. In every single case, including the most liberal of the states, California, Wisconsin, Maine, the people have opted to retain the conjugal conception of marriage as the union of husband and wife in their law. So, uh, yeah, the situation's bad. Uh, It's dire. But it's not as if the whole culture has forgotten its fundamental uh, founding principles no so and, the and, and certainly' the, that's, uh, of
0: the culture yes, certainly you're right to identify the greater problem in the elites, but the elites have huge influence and, and I'll tell you, Robbie, the thing that right now concerns me more than anything else is what I see in terms of very clear concessions on these issues among the young, including uh, evangelical young and and uh, I, I'm certainly ca- uh, certain that it's true in terms of Catholic young. Uh, yes, you absolutely. know, right, right now uh, on uh, evangelical college campuses, uh, the influence of the elites, the, the culture-shaping influence of the cultural creatives, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to I think, overestimate that kind of influence.
1: And, and that's why it's so important for us to fight at the level of, of, of the elite sector of the culture. Uh, it's very important for our young people to uh, have at least the opportunity to hear from professors – Uh, or journalists or syndicated columnists or uh, talk show people on TV or on the radio who actually are willing to defend the basic principles of our civilization. Now, the majority of the people they hear speaking from those uh, elite platforms are going to be people who reject the Judeo-Christian ethic. But it's very important that the other side, that the defense of the Judeo-Christian ethic, at least be represented.
0: When you think about the issue of same-sex marriage, which you brought up, and you mentioned the larger issue, the defense of marriage, the conjugal union of marriage, I'm thinking to a recent exchange you had. uh, It it may be too much uh, to uh, call it an exchange, but at least a a public exchange of ideas that you had with uh, a law professor over the issue of of the whole debate about gay marriage, and uh, it was John Yoshino, I believe, Kenji Yoshino. uh, Yeah, that's right.
1: Kenji Yoshino is a very um, highly regarded uh, professor of law. He was at Yale Law School for many, many years. He's now moved to uh, NYU, New York University Law School. And he's regarded as one of the very top gay rights uh, scholars in uh, American legal education. And we had an exchange with him, which was occasioned by an article that I wrote uh, with two of my uh, former students, uh, uh, Ryan Anderson and Sharif Gerges, which appeared in the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy. And it was entitled, What is Marriage? And it made the case for the conjugal conception of marriage as the union of husband and wife. And it uh, challenged the other side by saying that uh, we don't think that those who wish to redefine marriage to accommodate same-sex couples can give any account consistent with their view of why marriage should be a sexual partnership at all, as opposed to a partnership integrated around some other activity like playing tennis or reading novels. Or even more importantly why marriage should be between two people and not three or four or five or seven in a so-called polyamorous uh, sexual partnership. Uh, and uh, Kenji Yoshino was uh, one of uh, a number of uh, law professors and other scholars who, um, who uh, favor same-sex marriage or the redefinition of marriage, uh, who tried to respond, but in every case, including Kenji Yoshino's case, they failed to take up our challenge. They failed to make even an effort to show that their view is consistent with the belief that marriage is two and only two people. Now, what I would like the American people to understand, therefore, is that uh, when they are being asked to buy this idea of same-sex marriage, they're buying more than that idea. They're buying the abolition of the very idea of marriage as a union of two persons, that once you eliminate the element of sexual complementarity from the definition of marriage, You've removed any principled ground for thinking of marriage as anything remotely like we've historically understood it to be, the union of two persons, a, a husband and wife.
0: Well, I think that's that's all part of one package, and uh, you know we may disagree on this, but I think most Americans, if they're thoughtful about this at all, do have some understanding of that. I did note that Professor Yoshino did not pick up on your challenge. He did concede that he thought your argument was the best argument that could be made in defense of marriage as a heterosexual union and an exclusively heterosexual union, and yet he said it, it just doesn't pass muster. And, of course, he, he would be expected to say that. I read his book Covering. You know, he goes to the extent of arguing, and I had not seen this argument before. And uh, someone like Martha Nussbaum, with whom you've had another very public debate, has made a similar argument, and that is that, uh, that any concession on the issue of the full legitimation Uh, the full normalization of sexual minorities is is to set the culture on uh, a a route to disaster. They really believe
1: that. Well, Professor Nussbaum, um, uh, who's a very famous professor at the University of Chicago in the Departments of Philosophy and Classics and in the law school out there, uh, Professor Nussbaum has gone so far as to advocate the abolition of um, uh, laws prohibiting incest between uh, adult uh, uh, siblings or uh, a parent and an adult, uh, an adult child. So you can see that she's following through on the radicalism that uh, is, is present in any proposal to redefine marriage as something other than the union of husband and wife. Now, most people, of course, are unwilling to say out loud. Most people who are on that side are unwilling to say out loud that it entails such things as the abolition of uh, uh, the substance of our incest laws. They would they would retain in place laws prohibiting incest in the case of minor children, but but they would condemn laws as she condemns laws that forbid incest between you know two adult brothers or an adult brother and adult sister or an adult parent and I'm sorry the parent and an adult child or or what have you she's willing to say it out loud so again I hope that the American people will listen and see that what is being proposed here is not some minor revision that would just expand the institution of marriage a little bit to enable another class of people to come in. What's being proposed is the abolition of anything that remotely resembles marriage as we have historically understood it, and as we have understood it to be so critical to the well-being of men and women, of the children that come as their union, and for society as a whole. We're so dependent, Al. Every society is, not just us. Absolutely. Every society is so dependent on the institution of marriage because it is the original and best and irreplaceable uh... ministry of health education and welfare what the family does cannot be done by government or any other institution although when the family breaks down as it has so broadly now in our culture and in western cultures more than forty percent of children being born out of wedlock as you probably know at this point uh... when the family breaks down government does have to step in it does a poor job at it but somebody's got to step in to play those health education and welfare roles Uh, Government comes in, government grows, freedom is diminished, uh, the quality of care given to children can't be anything like what it is with a mother and father, and we get all the social pathologies that come in the train of family breakdown.
0: And there's such a resistance to dealing with the argument that marriage really does matter. I'm thinking of the aftermath of the Moynihan Report and – You know, even in the press over the last several days, there has been a a complaint that, once again, is blaming the victim to suggest that, for instance, having a child out of wedlock is a part of the pathology uh, rather than just that which is to be expected as normal.
1: You're absolutely right, Al. I I wonder if your listeners remember the the Moynihan Report. I'm glad that you brought it up. It was uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was at uh, at the time serving in Lyndon Johnson's administration. We're talking about 1965. He was a professor at Harvard who'd taken a leave to serve in the government. And he did a study uh, that showed that uh, 25% of African-American children were born to women who didn't have a husband. 25%. Moynihan, who was a very good sociologist, uh, saw that this was disastrous, that this pretended a catastrophe for the African-American community in the United States unless something was done about it. Well, he released his report. He was pilloried and attacked. People even claimed he was a racist, which was the very opposite of the truth. Uh, Virtually nothing was done, of course. And uh, what happened? Well, the out-of-wedlock birth rate in the African-American community skyrocketed from 25%, which was so high he was ringing the alarm bell, up to over 70% today. And Al, at the time in 1965, when Moynihan was ringing that alarm bell, the out of wedlock birth rate for the general population, the population as a whole, was a little under five percent. As I mentioned earlier, today it's at forty percent. Did this
0: you see? Catastrophic. It is. Did you see the statistic that in the uh, city of New York that the African American abortion rate is now about sixty percent?
1: It's a horror. It's a nightmare.
0: Uh, and forty percent, by it's, the way, for the general population.
1: Upon thousands, you know, and over over the years. Millions of our African-American children destroyed by the practice of abortion. Uh, No racist, no Ku Klux Klansman, no Nazi could have come up with a more effective way of carrying out their vile ideology uh, of genocide against against blacks than what uh, has happened here.
0: You know, at one uh, and point, I think
1: those groups that uh, that push abortion, especially in minority communities mm-hmm. and poor communities, are responsible for it.
0: I heard Jesse Jackson speak on this issue in the 1980s, and he made that very point.
1: Yes, he was a very strong uh, pro-lifer in those days. He, uh, he uh, made the point out that he himself had been born to an unwed mother and that had abortion been lawful and available to her, she might very well have destroyed his life. Uh, in the womb, and he he used that as the the fulcrum for uh, making his pro-life pitch and his attack on uh, legal abortion. Then, as you know, he decided to run for uh, the Democratic nomination for president, and uh, of course running in the Democratic primaries in a strongly uh, pro-abortion party. uh, He abandoned his pro-life position, gave no explanation for it, gave no reasons for changing his mind. He simply shifted. He flip-flopped from Strongly pro-life uh, to pro-abortion, and that's where he has remained. It's it's a very sad it's a very sad thing.
0: It, it is very sad, and especially sad in his case. But uh, it's a pattern we've seen before. I mean, Al Gore was once uh, very very pro-life as well. Then that's so, just so a, many of them part are. of the story. We so mentioned Daniel Patrick Noin, Moynihan. Uh, I'm reminded that when he was running for the uh, the United States Senate there in New York against James Buckley, at one point James Buckley called out to uh, to Moynihan, his opponent, and said that his opponent was a tenured Ivy League professor. And Daniel Patrick Moynihan stood up, he's a very tall man, and said, let the mudslinging begin. And uh, (laughs) so uh, I'm glad to be having a conversation with a tenured Ivy League professor right
1: now. Well, let the mudslinging begin.
0: I wanted to see how Professor George would handle the question about moral change. He is one of the world's leading experts on natural law. That's his business, and that's how he really made his academic reputation, first and foremost. The issue of how we apply that kind of understanding to moral change is a real challenge. How do we come to the reality that change can happen so quickly? If indeed these truths, these moral principles are so deeply embedded in the human conscience and in nature, how is it? The individuals and societies can so quickly deny what is so obvious, what they really cannot not know, as one author has said. Well, when I heard Robbie George respond to that, I heard a professor say, you know, what we have to do is, first of all, not overestimate the problem. Uh, There are still many who hold to a traditional biblical Christian morality on these things. Well, I'll concede that point. However, one of the most important things we have to understand is the trajectory of moral change within a society. And when you look at the trajectory, it's not coming towards us. It's going away from us. The younger you go in our society, the more likely you're going to find a diminished understanding of and commitment to natural marriage and a biblical notion of restraints upon human sexuality, which is to say the more support you find for same-sex marriage and similar kinds of Well, radical arrangements. What we're facing is the question is whether there's enough restraint in this society. Are there banks on the river sufficient to hold the deluge that is certainly coming? Dr. George, you teach on one of America's most respected university campuses. And, uh, you know, I I think of Princeton and you immediately think of the, the history of the institution people like Witherspoon and Edwards and all the rest. What is the fate of, uh, of of those values and verities held by the founders of Princeton on a campus like that today?
1: Well, Princeton is very much like other uh, main mainline university uh, uh, campuses. The ethos is very liberal and uh, very secular, especially uh, among the faculty. The situation is a little different with the students. We have vibrant uh, religious life for our students uh, here. There are three active and wonderful evangelical uh, fellowships. Uh, There's a very strong and orthodox Catholic um, uh, chaplaincy. Uh, There's a strong orthodox Jewish uh, community. Uh, And uh, those students sometimes uh, uh, work across the um, uh, religious lines on common projects such as our pro-life movement. We have a very powerful student pro-life movement here at Princeton and it involves evangelicals and Catholics and orthodox Jews uh also on the uh on the marriage issue uh you know sometimes people lament the way uh young people seem to be drifting on the uh on issues of sexuality and marriage and that's certainly certainly true and alarming uh, one one does hope as as young people get older and they experience marriage themselves uh, as long as we can save it <laughs> for them to experience uh that that they'll come to a deeper understanding and better appreciation of Of uh, what marriage is. But I've noticed that on the pro-life front, if anything, things have been going in a much more positive direction. I think there's stronger, and the polls bear this out, and it's certainly true on the Princeton campus, there's stronger support for the pro-life cause among young people uh, than there was when I uh, arrived at Princeton 25 years ago. So while we might be down a bit uh, with young people on uh, marriage-related issues, we seem to be up a bit when it comes to uh, abortion, euthanasia, the sanctity of human life.
0: I noted, by the way, that the New York Times gave coverage to the, uh, the Anscombe Society just in recent days.
1: Yes, they did. And the Anscombe Society is uh, the student uh, society at Princeton that advocates very strongly, very strongly uh, on behalf of uh, abstinence and, uh, and chastity and marriage as the uh, union of husband and wife. Uh, that's certainly not a popular position with the faculty at a place like Princeton or any other mainstream uh, university today, but these kids are brave and bold and they're brilliant. And they're willing to stand up and make the case. And they'll make the case in class, by the way. They'll, they'll debate the faculty members uh, on these sex and marriage issues. And it's not just that they uh, uh, quote the Bible, either, or any other religious uh, text. They're prepared to argue on the plane of philosophy. They're, they're, they're prepared to engage the sociological data about the importance of the, the family, and the, especially the importance of the family as historically and traditionally uh, under, understood. Uh, and uh, they, they've named their society, the Anscombe Society, uh, uh, to recognize the late Elizabeth Anscombe, who was one of the greatest uh, philosophers of the 20th century, perhaps the greatest uh, woman philosopher ever to live, uh, who was a devout Christian and a strong advocate of chastity.
0: You know, I looked at that New York Times piece, and it's a, a part of a phenomenon that I call the National Geographic Syndrome. And uh, it, it's like the cultural elites all of a sudden discover this tiny little exotic tribe, more exotic than anything they could imagine back in the old, uh, you know, Victorian National Geographic days. And, and this is a tribe on an American elite campus that believes in chastity and sexual absence before marriage. And, and it seems like in the pages of the New York Times, that that is just like finding an aboriginal group that they've never encountered before.
1: Sometimes it's so bad, Al, that we have to explain to them what chastity is. Sometimes they... They think that it means uh, uh, abstinence for everybody, including married couples. sometimes they think it means the uh, celibacy of course uh, uh, what uh, uh, what people who are serious about chastity know it means is the right use of sexuality, which means that sexuality has its place in marriage where it's a profound and wonderful gift indeed a holy thing, uh, but not outside of uh, outside of marriage that it's uh, that it's part of the essence of the bond between, uh, between husband and wife, and that that's its proper place and not somewhere else. Uh, so uh, sometimes our, our professors have to be given a little bit of education by our students on issues like that.
0: Well, God bless them. That is the students. I want to ask you a point-blank question here, because there are a lot of Christian parents who would think, you know, I have a really bright son or daughter. Uh, this kid really wants to do something great, wants to go to one of America's great leading uh, colleges or universities, What would be your advice, just in terms of a a very direct conversation with a parent, what would be your advice about how to think that issue through?
1: Well, Al, I get that question all the time. I get it from Catholic uh, parents, from evangelical parents, and from Orthodox Jewish uh, parents. And I'll tell you what my answer is. First, you have to know your child. Is your child a child who's well-formed, strong in his or her faith? Does your child know what he believes and why he believes it? Uh, that's important. If the answer to that question is no, then you probably don't want to just let that kid go off to a college where his faith is going to be constantly under assault. It's just too tough to stand up in the face of the kinds of attacks religious faith receives uh, on any secular mainstream uh, campus. Now, if your child is savvy about religious matters, is uh, someone who has had his faith questioned and tested, who knows not only what he believes, but but why he believes it. If you have a student who is not intimidated uh, by uh, authority or by uh, 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 celebrity or anything like that, and is willing to stand up for his faith, then a place like Princeton can be a wonderful place. My advice to the parents in that situation is, To look at what's going on on the campus and just to make make sure that the campus has at least some voices in authority positions who are willing to say to your kid, you know what? You're right. I agree with you. I'm on your side. I'm supporting you. I'm backing you up. I believe what you believe. And at a lot of places, including Princeton, there are a few of those kinds of voices around, more than a few in the case of Princeton. Now, there are lots and lots of people on the other side, actually far more people on the other side, but there are lots of people here at Princeton who believe what you and I uh, believe, especially on the core moral uh, uh, questions. And if you have that, if you have active student groups, uh, pro-life groups, if you have uh, strong uh, uh, Christian fellowships, uh, then that can be a very good campus for your student. There you're going to have to look individual universities. Uh, Princeton is a great place as far as those, you know, those criteria are concerned. There are some other places where it's going to be harder to find any kind of support. You have to look.
0: Yeah, I think I know exactly what you're talking about, and I won't ask you to handicap all of America's elite universities, but I think that piece of advice is really, really important. And uh, you know, I would think that uh, one way to to think about that would be to know that you need to be in conversation with someone who shares your, your values and uh, convictions on the campus and in the community who can be something of a guide to figure these things out.
1: Yeah, that's a very good point. I mean, and, and it, look, all of us need the support of a community of our faith, the people who share our faith. Uh, all of us need that. And if you're going to be on a campus where faith is going to be a minority position at best and where it's going to be under attack from a lot of sectors, then you're especially going to need strong communities. So what do you have, one of the things you have to find out is, do those communities exist? Is there a strong evangelical fellowship if you're, you're an evangelical family? Is there a strong Catholic chaplaincy if you're a Catholic fam- family. You have to look into that. W- who are the professors? You should ask, who are the professors here who who are active in you know, the Catholic community or the evangelical community, the Orthodox Jewish community, uh, whatever it is? And if the answer is, well, there aren't any, then you have a problem. But at a place like Princeton, there are many, and there's no reason why a family can't be in touch with some of those professors.
0: When you think about the Christian intellectual challenges of our day, and uh, and especially we're talking here about the Christian worldview as a as a truth claim, a, a truth claim that has existed throughout time, throughout space, and and now in this particular intellectual moment in the Western industrialized nations in general, and in the United States in particular, seems to be considered uh, something expendable. Where do you see the, the next challenges coming in, in terms of, uh, of our responsibility to give a reason for the hope that is in us?
1: Well, of course, the challenge is that we need to stop playing defense and start playing offense. Uh, uh, and I don't mean that as if uh, this competition is just a, just a game. Uh, we have to be able to give an affirmative defense of the Christian worldview and all of its components its theological and moral uh, components. Uh, we, we have to go beyond, though, just giving a defense of the Christian worldview and apologia to actually pointing out the defects in the secular alternatives, whether they're secular liberal alterna- alternatives or secular Marxist uh, there are you know, many different forms of, uh, of, of secularism. The dominant ones in, in, in our culture right now are, are liberal. But we need to be able to actually play some offense and to show what is defective in the vision of man, the vision of human dignity, the vision of human destiny uh, that one finds in the liberal tradition. I mean, I'll give you uh, just a straightforward uh, uh, example. Uh, If you ask anyone who holds a secular liberal view what they think morality is all about, assuming that they believe in morality, and many do, They would say, well, look, it's about people's rights and the protection of people's rights. Ah, okay, well, fine. I believe in rights, too. You do, too. But now the question is, where do our rights come from? How is it that we can believe that there are objective realities that can't be touched or tasted or felt like rights, like the right to free speech or the right to freedom of religion or the right to privacy? If they think there's a right to abortion, where did that right come from? Now, they, as, as secularists, they can't say it came from God. Or if they do say that it came from God, well, we would want to know a, a source. Is there, some, is there something in the Bible they can point to? Do they have some alternative religious source, some alternative source of revelation of the Bible? What is it? Well, now, if they say, well, it's not really from God, it's from nature. Well, we, we want to have an argument about that, too, because we have in the Christian tradition, and going back even further into the classical tradition, a very strong idea of what you mentioned earlier called natural law. We can give an account of where we think people's rights uh, uh, come from that is in terms of natural law. Can they? Well, I've never heard them give a very good account uh, of that. Uh, Once they are pressed into the defensive mode, their argument doesn't look really very strong at all. And I think that's where we have to push it.
0: I was glad to ask Professor George that question about how parents should consider sending their kids to one of these elite universities. You know, there is an aspiration in the heart of so many young people to go to such a place. And if you're on a campus like Princeton University, you can feel it. You can sense it. What a privilege it is to be in a place of such sustained and concentrated intellectual energy. At the same time, there are many seductions. His advice was sound. If sober, very helpful. One of the things I most appreciate about Robert George is the fact that he is optimistic. Well, no, that's not right, is it? Maybe the word is hopeful. He's not optimistic in terms of denying the obvious and the challenges before us. He's not glib and glad-handed simply by saying that uh, this is a challenge that we're going to win. But he is hopeful. I appreciate the fact that much of his hopefulness is grounded in the fact that he gets to meet with and teach very, very bright young people who at least in some significant numbers are being won over to the values and verities that we consider most important. Dr. George and I would argue many of these issues differently. We come from different theological positions. We come from different ways of doing moral argumentation, but I'm always fascinated to have a conversation with him and to see his mind at work. I think one of the crucial points of distinction has to do with just how compelling we believe the natural law to be. At the end of the day, Professor Robert P. George really does believe that the natural law can, in itself, form the basis of a compelling moral argument for such an issue as sexual restraint. I have to come at this from a position that is more informed by Romans chapter 1, when I believe that what we are told there is that humanity is dead set to suppress the truth in unrighteousness, and that there is no law written within the heart nor within the world of nature that will keep them from doing what they are determined to do except by the regenerating power of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is a restraining grace, and for that I am very thankful, and, and I do not deny the reality of the natural law. I do not deny the fact that that's a part of that restraining grace. But at the end of the day, I am not very hopeful. That a society hell-bent on moral revolution is going to be held in check by arguments from the moral law, the natural law. I'm thankful, however, that Robbie George is making those arguments. I'm thankful that he's making them better than just about anyone else is making them. And as an evangelical, we have every reason to use natural law arguments. We just don't believe that in the end, they're going to be enough. That's where we have to come back with the final issue always being the gospel. And the challenges we're talking about today are the challenges that point to the absolute necessity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where we begin, and that's where we end. Thanks for listening to Thinking in Public. I want to remind you about a special opportunity coming up on the campus of Southern Seminary on Friday and Saturday, February 11 through 12. Southern Seminary will be hosting the annual Give Me an Answer conference for college students. This year's theme is Recalibrate. Our special guest this year is going to be C.J. Mahaney, my dear friend. And also speaking will be Dr. Russell Moore, and I will be speaking as well. We want to challenge students to focus on true theology while living a life of humble obedience. For more information, visit sbts.edu. You can go to my website for a wealth of resources at albertmohler.com. Thanks for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time... Keep thinking.